If you'd like to turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. Again, we've looked at Nehemiah's life for a couple weeks as far as him as a person. And now we want to look at the book. You know, Catherine Genovese's coming home from her night job early one April morning in 1964 was attacked, viciously attacked. It was an attack in New York City that uh, ended up with 17 wounds and she ended up dying. What was interesting about that particular attack was it happened over a period of a half hour. The person attacked her, then she went away, came back, he went away, came back, finally um, killing her. The cries for help went unheeded. Between 12 and 30 people actually heard of the attack, and nobody responded. Oh, they peered out their second-story window to watch the person attacking Catherine, but no one actually stepped in and helped. Some asked, well, we should probably call the cops. Well, maybe someone else already has. The sense of outrage was nationwide, and Senator Russell of Georgia, even read the New York Times account of the crime into the congressional record. I mean, it was uh, just an outrage that people were watching an innocent girl uh, get stabbed and ultimately murdered, and nobody helped. It's called the policy of non-involvement, and if anything, our society has become more like that. People just watch, and things happen around us, and, or they call it bystander effect. Bystander effect. In other words, an individual offers no means of help to a victim when others are present. We just watch. As ungodliness around us happens, then we don't do anything about it. But again, we're going to study a man who was not like that. Nehemiah saw a need, asked God for power and for his presence to accomplish the need and actually... Uh, accomplished the need in his own life. Again, he got serious about the situation and accepted the responsibility for dealing with it. I trust that we are all like that. That as God lays something on our heart, we get involved. We, we don't have the bystander effect. Well, someone else will take care of that. By the way, the hard thing is this. We have so many needs. And what the... The, uh, the important thing is for us to zero in on what does God want me to do? What does God want to accomplish in my life? What has he given me as far as abilities and giftedness and resources? And what does God want me to do? But then when he, when he does show you what he wants you to do, do you put your hand to the plow? Or do you have bystander effects? Someone else will do it. I trust that's not the case. Let's, uh, let's, look at, let's just break down chapter 1. We're going to try to get through all of chapter 1 today. First of all, the inquiry. And we find this in verses 1 to 3, Nehemiah's inquiry. And I'm just going to read and give a couple comments. We'll get right to the, uh, I mean, just kind of laid out that way. It says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of uh, Hekaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, which is again around November, December. In the 20th year, now what do you mean 20th year? Well, he's referring to the, the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes. In the 20th year. By the way, Artaxerxes, from his historical point of view, uh, began his reign in 460, what's this, at 445. 
So again, the 20th year is 445 B.C. That's 400 and about 40 years before the time of Christ. Just think of it this way. Okay, this happened about 440 years before Christ came. As I was in Susha, or Shushan, either way you can say, depending on uh, how Jew or Greek would say it, uh, the capital. So here's Nehemiah in the capital of Persia, 445 B.C. That Hanai, one of my brothers, one of his literal brothers, you know, again, I think this is a brother too. He's not just saying, like, you're my brother. He's saying this is my blood, blood brother, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews, number one, concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had, uh, had survived the exile. That was the first thing on his mind. How are the Jews that survived the exile? By the way, he would be referring to the Jews because by this point there was two different groups of Jews that went from Persia back to Jerusalem. Two different times. And he's, he's actually uh, referring to those individuals. Now we know in the, uh, by chapter 2 that he leads a third group back. But he's just saying, you know, how are the Jews who have escaped, uh, who have survived the exile, the exiles who have returned, and number two, concerning Jerusalem. How's my Jewish brethren and, and brethren, and how's Jerusalem? It has been said that the true Jew never completely forgets Jerusalem. And that's true even to today. You find a Jew somewhere around this world, they have an interest in Jerusalem. So here's Nehemiah, good Jew. How are my Jewish brethren, and how is Jerusalem? Verse 3, And they said to me, the remnant there is in the province who had survived, excuse me, the the remnant that is in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble. That word is raha. Uh, I only say that because it usually refers to wickedness. Great trouble, great distress. Uh, Misery, calamity. I mean, can you imagine, okay, so he's asking for the report, and he's saying, oh, they are really, really doing bad. Really, really under a lot of stress, under a lot of calamity. And not only trouble, but shame, scorn, and disgrace by the enemy. That's what he's referring to in that second word. The enemy is, is, is like your God. You come back here and look at you. The walls are broken down. It was a sham. It was a shame, you know. And so the Jewish people who were trying to uh, get the temple done, trying to get their homes done, the, the walls obviously still uh, totally destroyed. And um, it was just a shame. They were in shame. They were in great trouble. The enemies were criticizing them, slandering them. And the word is literally means to cut or pierce. You know, it's just a sharp jab. And then finally, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down. That's in the intensive. It means it's totally destroyed. And that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar had done 140 years earlier. When he came through the third time to destroy, he totally disassembled. And we looked at that yet last week. The entire wall, everything, he, he literally took it block by block and threw it into the valleys on either side and basically saying, Jerusalem will never be again. So the... The wall is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. <coughs> Which means this, with the two groups of Jews that have gone back, they haven't done anything about the wall. They tried to get their uh, own homes uh, taken care of. They tried to get the temple started and that had been pretty much completed by this point. But they didn't do anything about the protection of the city. 
See, without walls and gates, then the city is, is, uh, is unprotected and the enemies can do as they will. So that's the inquiry of Nehemiah. Now, we need to know one more thing about Nehemiah, and that is found in verse 11. And that is, he is the cupbearer to the king. So we're going to actually go from the first three verses to the last verse, just to find out who this guy is. His position, Nehemiah's position. And again, verse 11. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Some have questioned whether or not there was just one cupbearer, or maybe there were multiple like you take a shift, as it were. Uh, you're the cupbearer for the first, you know, two or three months, and then someone else comes along. But he's a cupbearer to the king. Again, Nehemiah, and I'm just quoting an uh, individual. Nehemiah was a Jew, obviously, born in exile. Now, again, when he's saying he's in Shusha, uh, capital of Persia, he's in exile. He's a Jew out of, the, out of Jerusalem, out of the, uh, Israel. Again, after the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon, the Babylonians in 586. So he is born. He's probably 20-some years old, I would imagine, at this point. Maybe a little older. <coughs> he lived in a very hard age. Do we live in a hard age? Well, not like him. <laughs> but we live in a hard age. But that's Nehemiah. He living in a hard age. So far as the de- uh, destiny of his people Israel was concerned. Like other Jews before him, Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as well as Mordecai. Now, who did Mordecai have as a Esther, right? Again, Esther became queen, uh, became the stepmother of Artaxerxes. We looked at that last week. Uh, became queen of Persia. And then Nehemiah. Now, you know what we start finding here? I mean, God, even though the exile's over here, you got Daniel in control, you got uh, the three friends, you have Mordecai, he's, he's able to play a specific part in Esther, if I die, I die. And God uses people, even if they're taken out of the situation of comfort, God can use us in hard situations. And Nehemiah rose to a position of influence. In the court of this foreign king, he became his cupbearer. Now again, a cupbearer was an office. The office of cupbearer sounds quite menial to us today, right? I mean, you're a cupbearer, hand the guy the wine. But again, it wasn't that situation at all. The office of cupbearer came about in ancient societies because of the danger that an emperor or a king might be poisoned by a rival. Before that cup hit the lips of the king, had it go through the cupbearer. He was responsible for the protection of the king. Therefore, the cupbearer was a trusted person, appointed to care for and taste the wine to make sure it was safe before it was served to the king. His, the king's life was in the guy's hands. So again, he was very highly esteemed. He was a confidant, most likely. He was trusted. And because of his constant and regular access to the ruler, he naturally acquired influence. He had great influence, far beyond probably most anybody except for maybe some of the generals. He'd be like the key man, and yet he's in exile. <laughs> but he's 20, 30 years old, and, and he's got this position. And um, By the way, some have said it might even be that you could look at him like a, a chief of staff or a cabinet minister. You got to think of him in those terms, high up on the scale, a title with a high position. And again, in such positions, many would just be content to rest on their achievement and to retire in the good life, right? 
I mean, think about it. Just think about what we're talking about. A young guy in a very high position. By the way, if, if you have that type of high position and someone comes along and says, you know, I'd like to have a little a word with the king. Oh, yeah, yeah, I think I could do that. And many of the cupbearers were very wealthy, not so much from the king, but from the people paying them off. Give me, give me a good word to the king. You know, give a good word to the king for me. But again, when Nehemiah, you know, he lived a godly life. And I think he showed his greatness as a leader at precisely this point. He's high up. He's, he's, he's risen, as a word, climbed the corporate ladder, if you will, in exile. He has promotion and prosperity and he has power, but he never allows pride to get in the way. Because again, promotion and prosperity and power can endanger your spiritual life and calling. Is that true? You better believe it. We can become self-sufficient. Or as one man called it, promotion erosion. (laughs) I like that, promotion erosion. You get to a point where you just, you really don't believe with uh, John 15, without me you can do nothing. But again, here's a humble man. He could have very easily said, well, uh, yeah, boy, Jerusalem needs help and the Jews need help, but I'm going to send someone else. I'll I'll pay their way. (laughs) Because obviously he had money. We know that from chapter 5, he, he never took the governor's allowance. He literally paid for 150 people meals, <laughs> because it says it, every day for year after year after year, and he, he foot the bill, so he was a very wealthy man. But that wealth never went to his head. He, be, he was always a servant of God. Lord, whatever you want me to do, I will do. I won't send someone in my place. So he didn't have promotion erosion. That's where pride will endanger your spiritual life and calling. We can get so enamored with promotion. We can get so enamored with prestige and power that we forget God and what he wants to do. So that's his position. He's the cupbearer, but he's, I'll call him this, a humble cupbearer. He's, he's listening to what God has. And so let's look at number three, the Nehemiah's reaction. I'm going to call him this, the man who got involved, the man who cared. He hears, by the way, do you ever hear something around this world, something that needs taken care of, and it's a Christian that needs to take care of? It might be an opportunity to share the gospel. It might be an opportunity to serve. It might be an opportunity to write a letter. Somehow you are called upon to do something. It might be a ministry God wants you to do. He may even want you to move out of this area. To do something for him somewhere else. But the point is, you know, how do you respond to that? Well, look at uh, his reaction. The man who cared. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down. By the way, it was customary for Jews to sit down when they mourned. That's very common. But, you know, when you get a word of something that's really hard, don't you do that? You know, someone calls you, the phone rings at uh, 2 o'clock in the morning. Nobody ever calls me at 2 And then it's bad news and you... Sit down. You can't kind of picture that, the scene. And I, as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned. Now, underline this, for days. We were studying James 4 this morning, and uh, verse 7 says this, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Why do I bring up James? Because the idea is this. 
when God is working in our life, whether it's personally or how he's working, and it's, and it's a catastrophe, it's uh, something that's really hard, it should make us weep. When was the last time you weeped? When was the last time God moved you? Like you just, wow, man, huh, Lord, you, you know, you, uh, oh, I just can't believe that's happening. That you actually maybe wept for uh, a person who is not a believer and they're coming close to death and you're like, Lord, just give them the, show them the truth. Don't allow them to die without Christ, to spend eternity in hell. So he weeps for days. I mean, it affected him. You know, sometimes we run away from emotion. Don't run away from emotion. It should be driven by truth. It should be driven by the intellect. But he finds out and he's just overwhelmed. I gave you a couple of points to think about. First of all, he's brokenhearted and tender towards God. Again, he sat down, he wept, and he mourned. And the word mourned is in the intensive. That's the one verb that's in the intensive. In other words, it cut him to the heart. It, it gave him grief. Uh, he experienced empathy, not just sympathy, but empathy. I, oh, uh, you know, they are hurting. My brethren are hurting. So he wept and mourned. By the way, weeping is also a sign of strength sometimes. Sometimes we don't like to, again, weep. But it's interesting in Scripture, it says that uh, Ezra weeped. We won't read that, but in Ezra chapter 9, verse, uh, chapter 9, right in there, uh, 3 through 7, I believe it was. But he had a reaction. Uh, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. Acts uh, 20 talks about Paul, and I think he's talking to the the people of uh, Ephesus, and that he had tears. (laughs) And Jesus wept over Jerusalem, right? So we find in Scripture that weeping is a sign of character. It's actually a sign of strength. So again, uh, like I said, different. I think even Daniel, it might have said in Daniel, maybe nine, that he wept, I think. Don't quote me on that. But the point is, is this. You see a lot of godly men, and I'm assuming women as well, who when they find out uh, hard information, uh, hurtful information to someone else, they are able to even weep. Their whole heart is involved. Emotion, intellect, and will, the... The, the intellect is, is affected, the emotions, and then we're going to find out for him the will is affected as well. So he's brokenhearted, he's tender towards God. And the second thing is this, a godly leader recognizes the need and is personally concerned with the need. See, it's one thing to weep, it's another thing to get involved. But it says he continued. You can see God is working in his life, God is massaging his heart. Because he continues. So let me ask you a couple questions. Are you aware of the needs around you? (laughs) How about the needs in your own family? I was thinking about in my own children. How about in my own life? Lord's of recent been working on my own heart in some different areas. Do I see the needs in my life, in my family's life, in my children's life? How about the needs of you? No, I can't know every one of you. But I would hope, by the way, that's why we have shepherds, plural, for people, plural, where hopefully uh, I can reach out and help some, and Lee helps some, and Mike helps some, and Billy helps some, and Steve, and Andy, and even we help, we have other people, some of the deacons are helping shepherd, 
under us. Why? Because you can't, you can't affect everyone yourself. You're not omnipresent, omnipotent. But again, you see the need. Are you sensitive to the needs around you? Sometimes people, I mean, you know, we don't put up our antennas. In fact, I think almost we would like to walk through. You know, it's easy to walk through life like this because I can just concern myself with me and a couple other people around me and I don't have to deal with everyone else because quite honestly, it's a lot of emotion and energy and time, right? But no, are you sensitive? Could you actually write down on a piece of paper, you know, well, these are the four needs I see around me right now that God is saying, you know what, you can, you can be a, an instrument in my hand to meet. Do you see the needs in your own spouse? Well, obviously, I mean, I'm married to her. Mm, no, it's not that easy. Do you know what her or his fears are? Do you know what her or his greatest trial is? What is their thing that's kicking the slats out from their spiritual walk? You know, what is... See, needs are a lot. They abound. But here's a godly leader who goes again and, and, and wants to meet the need because he says, look at the thing he says. I sat down, I wept, I mourned for days and I continue. Now I continue doing something, fasting and praying. He sees the need. He is going to meet the need. But the first thing this leader does is he goes to God with the need. And I, I thought about this. What is my first response when I see a need and I need to meet it? <laughs> Sometimes it's not to go to God first. Oh, see the need? Let me see, Lord, how am I going to meet this need? Uh, what do I have as resources? What do I have as time? But he uses the word fasting and praying. He, no, Lord, I can't do this on my own. I would hope that this would be a challenge to us, that when you see a need, Lord, my friend needs you. I need to pray because that heart can only be opened by you. Lord, I see the need that I need to use my spiritual gift in this area. But Lord, you gave me the gift. You empower the gift. You show me how to use it. I need to, I need to go before you. Lord, how do you want me to use this gift? Or whatever it might be. Whatever the need might be. He took it to God first in prayer. Um, Dr. Barber, he was a man, lived quite a few years ago. He might still be alive. But the point is, is this. Um, he had a very insightful thing about praying. He said this. The self-sufficient person, the self-sufficient man, do not pray. Why? They merely talk to themselves. A self-sufficient man doesn't pray. He just talks to himself. He says the self-satisfied man will not pray. They have no knowledge of their need. Self-satisfied means I have everything I need. In fact, if you have a need, why don't you go meet it yourself? You know, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. So you have the self-sufficient. He does not pray. They merely talk to themselves. The self-satisfied will not pray. They have no knowledge of their need. And the self-righteous cannot pray they have no basis on which to approach God. The self right, or yeah, the self righteous says, you know, it's only me. <laughs> the point is this: a lot of times we don't pray because either we're self sufficient, we're self satisfied, or we're self righteous. And again, I think you should just ask yourself: when you come across a great need, do you really go to God, or is He kind of the last person you talk to after every all the other resources are used up? But here's a godly man 
You see, he, he recognizes the need and he quickly humbles himself before the one and the only one who is sufficient to really meet the need. And that is God himself. And he did what I would call this. First things first. If in the management world, I think it was Blanchard that wrote a lot about this, maybe even a book. Uh, but the idea is this. Do the first things first. What is the priority thing that you should be doing in your life? Like if you're a manager or a leader, there are things that you should be doing, but there's all these miscellaneous non-essentials that can easily distract your time. But you've got to learn to do the first things first. Well, when it comes to the Christian life, this is the first thing. First thing first, what? Fasting and praying. Lord, I need you. You're my master. You're my God. And so I need to go before you. He actually brings up two different things that shows his priorities. Not only praying, but fasting and praying. That's the, the first thing there is the priority. That's the priority. By the way, let me just say a couple words about fasting. To a Jew, fasting was only commanded of the Jew one time a year. Do you know when that was? The Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. So it wasn't like... Now, Jesus did say about fasting, when you fast. He assumes that even in the New Testament covenant, we would be fasting. When you fast, and he gives uh, uh, instruction, Matthew 6. But again, to a Jew, it was only required once a year. Uh, for us, we're not told that we have, have to fast, but like I just said, Jesus assumes that we will. When was the last time you fasted? By the way, we fast when we are in mourning. We fast when we say, Lord, we can't do it on our own. By the way, self-sufficient people don't fast. Self-righteous people don't fast. Self-satisfied people, if you will. So, so what is fasting? Fasting is a method, as uh, Swindoll, I think, said, is a method of prioritizing. It's a way of saying to God that he is more important than everything else, even things that give us in this life uh, a pleasure. I, I'll say a couple things more. Uh, if, if what you're doing, like, let's say you decide, you know, I want to fast. Let's say I have an issue. <coughs> Lord, you need to meet this need, and, and it's a... You know, make sure that you ever fast that it's a spiritual purpose. A spiritual purpose. One man said that, one commentator said it this way. Without a spiritual purpose for your fast, it's just a weight loss fast. It will be miserable and a self-centered experience. Have you ever had that happen? You start out wanting to do it for God, but before long your focus is totally on the food and it is miserable. Yeah, how many more hours do I have before I can eat? You know, and then you're like clicking down at six o'clock and okay, ten minutes. And as soon as the six oh one hits, give me that sandwich, preferably a Reuben. No, genuine fasting is simply a part of concentrated, intense prayer and concern for the Lord, his will and his work. That's why you fast. Lord, I'm concentrating on you. Uh, fasting is always associated with prayer. Sometimes you pray without fasting, but if you ever fast, you do pray. And it's, Lord, I want to concentrate on you. Because I want to make sure <laughs> that... You are the one doing this impossible task, as it were. Because sometimes, one guy said it this way, I thought it was interesting. He says, and whatever man does, 
In whatever man does without God, they must fail miserably or succeed more miserably. And that second part is what hit me. Sometimes we do things without God and unfortunately we actually succeed. It looks like God is blessing, yet God is not even in the midst. You find that out later, that he isn't. But, you know, we've got to be very, very careful that, that as we serve God, that it's really him doing the work. I mean, it's really him empowering. It's really fruit that will last for eternity. So again, we, Nehemiah, I'm sure, he was just overwhelmed with, you know, Jerusalem and all this. And now he, he fasts and he prays. Let's look at this final point. On your outline, you'll say, man, you've already gotten through three points very quickly. Well, this last point, we've got to slow down a little bit. Nehemiah's prayer. Nehemiah's prayer. We're going to look at the, 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 the pattern for prayer and the persistence of prayer. First of all, the pattern. It's pretty interesting because it really kind of fits with the, uh, the acronym ACTS. Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. See, verse 5 is really adoration. And I said, and New King says this, New King James says, And I said, I pray, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, what is he doing right there? He is adoring God. I mean, just start pulling them out. O Lord, God of heaven. He uses that a number of times in Nehemiah. It's It's... It reminds, of, of, of the, it reminds us of the disciples' prayer in Matthew 6, where it says, Our Father who art in heaven. God, you're in heaven. <laughs> Which means you're overseeing us. It means that your will is being accomplished, that you are sovereign. That's what that uh, few words, Lord God of heaven. But not only that, he is sovereign, but he's great. He's awesome. That word awesome means he should be held in awe and feared. Nehemiah is saying, you know, you are, you are great. You're awesome. We should fear you. But we haven't. That's why we're in exile. That word awesome is used, I think, eight times throughout the uh, Old Testament. It's uh, quite, you know, uh, you see it quite often. And, and as you look at the, and think about the context, uh, they're in great distress, verse 3. And he's about to do a great work. He tells us it's a great work in chapter 4, verse 19. And if you're going to do a great work, you need great power. And that great power is going to be coming from a great God. See, when he says you're, you're great and awesome, he's thinking, I can, there's no way this can happen unless you're great. Lord, if, you're, if you don't show up, it's a total disaster. I will look like a fool. The people will be derided even more by the enemies. And the entire project will fail. Lord, it's, it's on your shoulders. I, I've been thinking, is, is, is this the God that I serve, that you serve? Is the God you worship big enough to handle the challenges that you face? You know? And look at verse 6, it says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before, before you. Now catch this, day and night. And by the way, it's not for me, it's for the people of Israel, your servants. It really shows a humble heart. He really is a humble man. I, I'm not doing this for you, I'm, I'm doing this for your namesake because they're your people. And every time, every day that that, that wall doesn't get built up to people, the enemy of you... Uh, deride the people of God. 
So he adores God first. But then he does a, a pretty interesting thing. He confesses sin. Second part of verse 6, confessing the sins. And that's, I believe, in the intensive. And in other words, he's, and, and surely he's going to confess the sins of Israel. Because why were they brought into exile in the first place? Because of sin, went away from the uh, God. And why were they sent back? Because God is a promise-keeping God. But he does something interesting, confessing the sins of the children of Israel, which, what's the next word? We have sinned against you, both my father's house. And what's the, what's the little phrase? I hope your version has this. And I have sinned. Very personal. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. I'm part of the deal. These are my people. These are your people. But when I say we have, uh, there's sin, we have sinned. He can see in his own heart that he is not exempt. Unfortunately, sometimes when we deal with people, we, you're the sinner. <laughs> you're the struggler. He, here's a very humble man. He recognizes himself to be a sinner. You see this very consistently. Daniel, when we study Daniel chapter 9, over and over again, he identifies with the people. And yet nothing is bad, nothing bad is said about Daniel. And yet he identifies with the, the people of God. Uh, Ezra chapter 9, if you, if you want to turn there just for a moment. Um, well, you know what? Time will not allow us to. But the same thing happens to Ezra. Thirteen years before this event, Ezra comes back in the second wave. And as he's confessing the, the, the sins of the people in that scenario was because they were marrying um, foreign wives. It was against the covenant. But he put himself with the people. We. And you say, well, he didn't marry a foreign wife. Yeah, but he was representing himself with the people. When we confess sin, we have a tendency to confess the sins of other people in a manner meant to excuse ourselves. But Nehemiah, though he lived an exemplary life, Nothing bad in Scripture said about him. He didn't plead innocence. He said the we. I have sinned. Which means the second major point is this. Nehemiah understood solidarity. <laughs> we are in this together. We are a body. And you say, was that really true? Well, think about Joshua chapter 7. Joshua 7, Old Testament. Remember, they come into the land. God has promised to give it to them. All of a sudden, they get beat. What is it? AI, I think it was. And there was sin in the camp. And it says this, Israel sinned. You know what's interesting? It wasn't the whole group of Israel that sinned. It was just one person. Who was his name? Achan, right? Remember, stole, put it under, tried to keep it away from... And yet, everyone is considered, no, you're a group. We are a group. I'll say it this way. Well, Corinthians 5, a sinner, chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 5. And what does Paul say? Get the leaven out, because leaven permeates. Don't be proud. Don't be arrogant. You're just allowing the sinful person to be there. By the way, we're all sinners, but we should be all sinners who are repenting. <laughs> I sinned. I sinned. I sinned today. I sinned uh, yesterday. I sinned the day before. I think every day I sin. If, 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 if I can't remember it, my wife will tell me, right? <laughs> you know, you're... But, but the point is we should be repenting. 
Quote, in the body of Christ, we belong to one another, we affect one another, and we can't escape from one another. Which tells me this right now at this very moment. Maybe you're a part of this body. Maybe you're a member. Maybe you're in sin. You haven't confessed it. You know what it is, but you're not willing to confess it. You know what, you know what the reality is? You're affecting me. You're affecting us. I don't even know who you are. I'm not going to point out any names. But when, when you sin, we're a body. Take a hammer, smash your finger, this one, and tell me if it doesn't affect you. No, it's just a finger. No, it doesn't affect me at all. No. Oh, oh. And if you're a guy, you're even more dramatic. No. <laughs> See, he recognized himself to be a sinner, but he was in solidarity. In other words, it's us, it's me, it's we. Godly leadership identifies with the people and are sensitive to their own faults and their own sins. Now again, I am not saying this. Please miss, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that Nehemiah was saying, you know what, their sin, or Ezra, when he said, you know, you have taken foreign wives. I have actually done that sin. But what he's saying is this. I am part of this group. And by the way, I am susceptible to those types of sins as well. And that particular sin. So he, he actually was willing to, um, you know, the we. And like I said, you see that in Daniel. You see it with Ezra. You see it with Nehemiah. These are godly men who, when they approached the sins of the people, it was we. The third thing, they go from adoration to confession. By the way, isn't that a great biblical way to pray? You adore God, but man, as soon as you get near light, your sins are exposed. God is light in him. There's no darkness at all. As soon as you start praising God, you know what? Things come up. Lord, rescue me from this sin and that sin. But then he goes back to thanksgiving, recalling God's faithfulness. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful... By the way, this is a compilation of a lot of Old Testament passages. He's not quoting just one. But he's saying, listen, this is what the Old Testament, especially the... um, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, is a summary like this. Uh, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. I think it's Deuteronomy 26, especially. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place which I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Verse 10. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. You see the pronoun? It's all about you, God. It is all about you. These are your people, but I'm doing this and I'm praying because they are your people. And it's about your name and your power. So... He just reiterates to God. And so he goes from adoration to thanksgiving and goes back and says, Lord, you are faithful. If we got our... <laughs> he does not blame ship. If we are in this mess, <laughs> it is because we put ourselves here because you're faithful. It has nothing to do with you. Right? By the way, if you're in a mess, first of all, I ask, is it because of your sin? And don't blame God. Well, you gave me that wife. You know, I grew up in that home. Can't believe I'm in this pitsy country. You know, why can't I find, you know, why can't I go and... uh, Don't blame shift. Don't blame shift. So he goes adoration, uh, confession, 
uh, thanksgiving. And then finally, he actually asked. You know, kind of like in the Lord's uh, disciples' prayer. Uh, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Thy will be done. Here's, O Lord, verse 11, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. This is the, uh, the, sometimes we rush right to supplication. And to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Underline that if it's in the, however it's written out. Fear all of your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of, I hope your version has this, in the sight of this man. Now this man would be whom? Artaxerxes, right? So this is the dilemma. Lord, you put something on my heart, but I got this man in front of me. And I can't leave. I'm the cupbearer of the king. But he, by the way, the rivers of water are turned. Uh, Proverbs says that uh, the Lord uh, uh, moves the heart of the king, right? But you know what's happening? See, he, he said, I've been praying this for days. I mourn for days. I, I've been praying over and over and over again. And as, as he has been praying, what, you know what's happening? It isn't that God's heart has changed because we know that in the sovereign plan of God, the Israelites had to be back in the land. But what was happening is his heart was changing. I'm talking about Nehemiah's. When we pray, it's our heart that changes. He's getting to the point of, he's so burdened about Jerusalem, he's like Isaiah, here am I, send me. So that's the pattern of prayer. And I would encourage you as people, pray that type of pattern. Start with worship, start with adoration. As soon as you see light, as soon as you come close to God, what's going to be the natural thing? Confession. But then you go right back to thanksgiving because we serve a great God. Don't we? Ah. Aren't you glad we serve our Father? And oh, and by the way, Lord, you know the needs. But they're all for your glory. <laughs> and so we end with this last thing, persistence in prayer. And again, if you, cha- if you um, compare chapter 1, verse 1, 20th year, month of Chislev, that's November, December. Chapter 2, the month of Nisan in the 20th year, same year. But those are about four to five months difference. This is the point. He was persistent in his prayer. He kept praying. Day after day, night and day, night and day, night and day. Just, and the Lord was burning his heart. The Lord was molding his heart. The Lord was uh, shaping his heart to accomplish the task at hand. Now, he was persistent in prayer. Again, how, how often we get a prayer request and we forget it. Well, we keep bringing it up. Some of you uh, signed off on wanting to pray for a missionary. Do you, are you still doing it? You know, again, if you aren't, please do. But let me say just a few more things. And unfortunately, I have two pages. <laughs> of five pages, I'm only on my fourth. <laughs> I know, I preach long. I appreciate your uh, patience. I appreciate the fact that you want to learn. And then you're saying, well, I wish the, the, the mic would just go off. Let me just give you a couple things, though. As we are looking at persistence, <coughs> we don't want to go in the wrong direction. We do not want to give the impression that persistent praying is in any way associated with long, repetitious, vain, babbling praying. I prayed Nehemiah's prayer. It took me 90 seconds. I looked at Ezra's prayer. I think it took me two minutes. 
What am I trying? By the way, Ezra's prayer doesn't include, or Nehemiah's doesn't include his family, doesn't include a lot of other things. But what I'm saying is the prayer in Scripture is very short. And I think we need to step back and make sure we're not thinking like a heathen. So let me give you three final principles about praying. First of all, don't pray like an orphan. Matthew 6, verse 7 says this, And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen. By the way, the heathen have no relationship with God. For they think that they're going to be heard for their many words. They think this. Heathens think this. Many words equal God hears. And sometimes we fall in that trap. We repeat the same things over and over and over again, almost like idle words. It's almost like a babble. Because if we're going to do it, we've got to persevere before, uh, longer than God. And then he'll answer. By the way, I'm not saying that, enough, that there's something wrong with long prayers. We see Jesus spending all night in prayer. Luke 6, verse 12. Continued all night in prayer to God. Uh, the Psalms, some of them are very long and some of them were prayed. Psalms 119. Again, Ezra is quite a long prayer. It's a whole chapter. But the point is this. We can't think like an orphan. <laughs> we can't think that my motivation is I'm going to have to pray a long time before God hears me. That's praying with vain repetitions. Long, repetitive. See, the ancient Greeks and Romans thought that. They used a lot of verbiage, a lot of empty phrases. By the way, sometimes we fall into this, you know, Hindu mantras. Muslim. Uh, rosary. But even evangelical sometimes. Sometimes with a person you can almost know exactly what they're going to say for the first two or three minutes because it's the same thing all the time. I'm not saying it's always wrong, but be careful we don't just because it's easy. Because that's how the pagans think. A lot of words God will hear. It's even ironic with the Lord's Prayer. Our, our Father who art in heaven, I will be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. Sometimes we say that without even thinking. Wait a second here. That's a, way to, that's a way to train us to pray, and yet we will say it so quickly it just becomes almost like a mantra. Again, why do pagans use long prayers? Because they think that without long, God won't hear. In fact, the Greeks and the Romans often began by reciting long lists of names of their deities. The idea is they would name like 15 or 20, let's say, deities, thinking this, well, at least I'm going to hit somebody. And maybe one of them will answer me. That's just pagan babbling. They're praying like an orphan. Because why? What is an orphan? An orphan has not experienced a father's love. An orphan doesn't have a true sense of their own identity because they don't have a father. They, they often starve for attention. They are never secure in anyone's care. Uh, they're always testing the relationship. That's exactly the opposite of everything that we have, right? We are secure. We know our Father. Our Father knows us. He has drawn us into the family through adoption. We're not orphans. We don't have to test the relationship. It's secure. So we, we need to think like a child of God, and we need to pray like a child of God, not like an orphan. We have to pray. Um, we have to just know that, you know what? My father wants to listen. I think that's great. I have fallen into this. I have thought that unless I pray long, that he maybe won't... Re- I'm not serious, therefore he's not going to be. We've got to be careful about those things. I'm not saying not to pray long. 
By the way, I think as you grab a hold of these concepts, you want to pray longer. <laughs> because you're not trying to bend his ear, you're just trying to fellowship with him. So again, they should not think that they have to pray in exactly the right way or for precisely the right thing, or the, uh, precisely the um, uh, right amount of time to get what, what they want from God. No, a child, a son, just says, uh, he is my father. So I'm just going to challenge you, and again, I went through that very quickly. Don't pray like an orphan. Know who your father is, if indeed you receive Christ, and know that he wants to hear. Number two, keep it simple. Having the perfect father makes all the difference when you're praying. If you look at Matthew uh, 6, I think it's seven times he uses this phrase, our father or your father. The idea is this. Again, you don't have to be uh, precise and specific. And if you don't use all the right words, he's not going to hear me. No, I can keep it simple. Uh, With God as our Father, our prayers do not need to be complicated. They can be simple. They do not need to be long. They can be short. In fact, Martin Luther said this. Now, Martin Luther is the guy that I've often said, I think he prayed many times, two, three hours in the morning. He said, I had to pray that much just to get myself ready for the day. That's great. But don't feel like, okay, if I don't have two, three hours, well, I've failed. He said this, quote, Our prayer must have few words but be great and profound in content and meaning. And then he ended with a conclusion. Few words, Christian. Many words that lack meaning, pagan. Thank you for saying that, Martin. <laughs> because that is so true. Remember Elijah, Mount Carmel, First Kings? Uh, you know, the, the, the prophets of Baal, they're there all day. He even says they're cutting themselves and they just keep... Same mantra over and over and over again. And then actually, uh, it's interesting because, you know, you wonder if this is ungodly, but Elijah is actually taunting them. Oh, maybe he didn't hear. You know, maybe he had to go to the bathroom. That's what it means to relieve himself. You know, he's really taunting them. But when Elijah Elijah comes, ah, throw the water, ah, throw some more water on, you know, let's make sure that everybody knows who this is. This is his prayer. One time, and at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, this is what he said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are the God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And the fire of the Lord fell. It took him five, ten seconds, whatever. Keep it simple. Keep it short. Why? Well, he was absolutely convinced, you know, what needed to happen. So if you find your prayers, if you find your prayer life is weak, is it possible that you are trying to make things too complicated? And when I I read that from a guy and I thought, that's it? Yeah, I think it's long. I'm not praying. I'm praying more like an orphan sometimes. It can be simple. It can be simple. He goes on and says this, our prayers must be frequent and of course they ought to be, excuse me, fervent and of course they ought to be, and they have to be frequent because it says pray without ceasing, but they do not have to be fancy. Fervent, frequent, but they don't have to be fancy. And then finally, the last one, and don't pray like an orphan, keep it simple. And then finally, God is well informed. 
Matthew 6, verse 8. Therefore, do not be like them, the heathen, you know, repetitious prayer. For your Father knows the things that you have need of before you even ask. And the word is, no means to completely know. Completely, he knows exactly what you need. So my question to you this morning as we close, what's your need? <laughs> what's your need? What's your, what do you need? Comfort, healing, guidance, victory, enablement, wisdom, help, passion? What do you need? Hopefully your antenna is up and you even know what you need. That's not always easy because sometimes our hearts are very deceptive. But again, if you are one of his, if you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your Father is probably working right now to meet that need. In other words, very likely he has even begun a providential series of events that ultimately will result in the answer to that prayer that you may not even have started praying yet. And you say, well, how do you mean that? Let me close with one final illustration, Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor lived about 150 years ago. He was a missionary to China. He learned that God gives us what we, almost, we need almost before we ask. And this, this time frame that I'm talking about is 1859. So that puts us back right to just before the Civil War. Is that correct? Wasn't the Civil War 1861 when it started? So this was just before the Civil War, just to kind of think of. So Taylor is in China 150-some years ago. And this is what happened. He faced a crisis. The man who ran his mission hospital suddenly was forced to return to England. Unfortunately, the man not only ran the hospital, but he also provided almost all of its funds. <laughs> the main contributor is gone. The future of the work was in jeopardy. Hudson Taylor did not have any idea how God would provide for the hospital, but he was absolutely convinced that God would provide. To close the mission down would be to fail in God's calling. Taylor called the hospital staff together to explain the situation. Among the things he told them was that he could no longer guarantee their salaries. Yet he invited them to stay and to trust God for the need. Some doubted, and they returned home. But others were willing to depend on God's fatherly care. Gradually, the situation at the hospital worsened. The food supply decreased until finally they ran out, they ran to their last bag of rice. Then on the day, their food ran out altogether. A letter arrived from England on that very day with a check for 50 pounds, and the hospital was saved. Furthermore, the man who wrote the check (laughs) had recently come into a large inheritance and wanted to know how the rest of the money could be used to glorify God in the land of China. The remarkable thing is this, not simply that God kept the hospital open. The remarkable thing is that the letter had been sent months before it arrived in China, long before the crisis even began. God knew about the need before the need even arose. So by the time Hudson Taylor prayed for God's help, help was already on the way. And that's exactly what... Matthew 6 says, for your father knows the things that you have need of before you even ask. But see, he brings this in, he says, but you've got to ask. Because he knows if you're going to ask. And by the way, us asking is part of the answer, but we need to ask. But he already has the process started. Or as one man said this, in all of history, in all of history God has never been surprised during a prayer meeting. Oh, by the way, I forgot that one. 